No hunting stories. Came expecting a hunting story, then read my book. But uh, there's something, there's a question about this text. We're going to be turning to Genesis 3, 1 to 15 in a few minutes, and this is kind of a long introduction. I tend to have long introductions and short sermons, but uh, uh, when we get to that text, there's a question there that it took me a long, long time to figure out. I've wondered about it. Kind of shows maybe how dense I am, which there's no shame in, any of us being a little stupid or thick-skulled. Uh, it also maybe shows how much I'm influenced by what the culture tells us about Christianity. And I think there is some shame in that. The culture does seem to condition people to think about the Christian faith in unbiblical ways. You probably agree with that. I have some cartoons here to show you that illustrates that. The culture. What do they think of us as Christians? Well, this is how some different people see me. How social progressives see me. We hear that word progressive a lot. And you could have this guy stand in the pulpit and he says, I went to Cabela's this morning to get a new duck call. And guess who rung me up at the register? A woman. A dadgum woman. Just shamelessly working outside the home where she dadgum belongs. The Almighty will strike this nation. Of course, I don't know if you can see the sign on the pulpit. National Conference of the Celebration of Misogyny. That means we hate women. And other things we do to hold back the progress of mankind just because. That's how some people see us. How my neighbors see me. You've seen that guy. Actually, it would be better if you hadn't because that's on a cartoon that not all of us uh, appreciate. But that's Ned Flanders, the innocuous kind of sappy Christian that lives next door to Bart Simpson's family. And I think people see me that way sometimes. How the media sees me. Kind of like a ninja. I suppose on that thing that crisscrosses back, there's, that's kind of a bullet uh, belt. Uh, he's got this darkened room, just one bare light bulb, and he's planning to attack some abortion clinics. That is how the media sees us as Christians, how it presents us sometimes. How atheists see me. There I am. Kind of a Neanderthal-looking guy. Got a club. Can't even speak clear English. Say earth round one more time. One time more. Uh, just refusing to understand science, right? That's one way people see us. How I see myself. A helpless sinner. Need grace. Please help. That really is where we all sit. All the time. Uh, well, there's going to be one more cartoon, I promise you. If these don't do it for you, that's okay. I agree they're not entirely accurate because you can't distill uh, Christ and culture down into a cartoon strip. But there's some truth in these. And if you pay attention, I promise you one more cartoon uh, that sums up our faith pretty well. But I want to share with you today from the first book of the Bible the third chapter. It's a story you know well. And here's the question. The question that I struggled with for a long time. If Eve was the one who took the fruit, why do we call original sin Adam's sin and not Eve's sin? 
think you've probably wondered about that. I wondered about it for a long time. The song says he bled for Adam's helpless race. But wait a minute, it was Eve. You know, don't we think that sometimes? That was my question for a long time. We're going to try to answer that question today, but I want to give you two sermons. My sermon is a, is a one-point sermon. The other sermon I'm going to give you is a feminist sermon. There's a women's liberation sermon in verses 6 and 7. Makes Eve look pretty good. Eve was interested in providing for her loved ones, right? The fruit, it says, was good for food. Point two, Eve loved beauty. It was a delight to the eyes. My wife told me one time that when she was in home economics class in high school, they, they would teach you to, uh, when you prepare a dinner, to have different colored foods on the table instead of, you know, things like macaroni and cheese, pork chop, and, you know, something else that's tan. You know, have different colors. Uh, food can be a delight to the eyes. Go to a fancy restaurant. That's the way they prepare it, to be a delight to the eyes when it hits the table. Third point, Eve aspired to knowledge. Knowledge isn't a bad thing. It was desired to make one wise. Now, none of these things are bad. It's good to provide for your family, even if your family consists of just you and your husband. It's good to love beauty, and it's good to be wise. All these things are good, but this is the important thing. Taking shortcuts to good things is not good. Now that view of women is popular today, that you know, women are always doing the good things. With a woman being talked about as a candidate for president, we hear it in this form. If we just had a woman for president, we wouldn't be running off to all these wars. A woman wouldn't have that macho mentality that gets us into so much trouble. Well, maybe in a fallen world, a feminine approach to things, however you want to describe it, isn't so good either. We need man and woman. Now, just so you know, I haven't begun the sermon yet. As I told you, this is a long introduction. Speaking of women's liberation, I'm not sure anybody really calls it that, those two words. Uh, and I'm probably on dangerous ground here, but bear with me. I read a magazine article not too long ago about what has happened in the so-called women's liberation movement and thought about how it illustrates the law of unintended consequences in at least a couple of ways. One, the women's liberation movement has liberated men. She's pregnant. Now men can say, so what? Get an abortion. The liberation of women or at least what we call the liberation of women, means that men no longer have, have to live with the consequences of their behavior. That's the liberation of men. They never seem to have seen that coming. And it doesn't seem to me as though making men liberated has made women any more liberated. So it has liberated men. The second thing it's done is made women equal to men, but not in the way that was expected rather than elevate women to some supposed higher equality with men, in some ways the movement has lowered women, has reduced women. 
just simply put, where men used to be permissible culturally for men to be vulgar, now it's permissible for women to be vulgar. You've all seen it. So those two things, the liberation of men and the lowering of women, thankfully, uh, though they're generally true, they're not universal. And that's one of the things that we in the church are trying to do is liberate all people through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you don't agree. And that's okay because so far that's only me talking. And it's only an article that I read. It's not the Bible, so let's turn to the Bible. A higher authority than I or any article any of us have read and see what it can tell us about the fall of man and woman, the enslavement of humankind that isn't just my opinion. It's from the Word of God. But before we do that, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of opening your Word this morning. And we want to thank you that we don't need to hear from a mere mortal speaking to this crowd, but that we can hear from your Holy Spirit who can speak through each one of us. I pray that whatever words I say would be words that you use, however correctly or incorrectly I put them, that your Holy Spirit would speak truth into the hearts of men and women this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we usually focus on Eve, right, when we talk about the fall. But I want to tell you that the disobedience, that original disobedience, that original sin, was a joint disobedience. They were both implicated. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along and keep it open as we as we share for the next few minutes. From Genesis chapter 3, this is the Word of God, beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she got the message right. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the truth of it is, up until then, they only knew good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Real important words there. We're going to come back to those words. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree which I, of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to take these verses a few at a time. Take a look at verses 1 through 5. The serpent, what was a serpent? He was one of God's good creatures. Now, it does say he was crafty, but you remember going back uh, to the beginning, there was one of those days in which he created the animals of the world and he called them good. So the serpent was, was one of God's good creatures. So here we see Satan's number one deception using something God created good for a bad purpose. Not only did this damage the image of the snake, the text that we just read tells you that the image of the snake was damaged, but through the snake, he portrayed rebellion as innocent self-interest. After all, why wouldn't God want us to be wise? Why wouldn't God want us to eat tasty food and enjoy it? It's the way we're fooled almost every time. When we're committing sin, we're convinced that it's not that bad. Do you have a big sin? I'll bet you think it's a little sin. And I'll bet you think your little sins aren't sins at all. Sin started out pretty bad. Sin is still pretty bad. Take a look at verse 6. Adam was with her. And he didn't eat innocently. We seem to think that when Eve took the fruit, she excitedly went looking for Adam. And when she found him, she offered the fruit to him. And that's not the way the Bible says it happened. That's the image that I've always had. Like she took that fruit and went to find Adam. But the truth of it is, they were always together, Adam and Eve. The Bible says that it wasn't until both of them ate that their eyes were opened. This argues for that unity of husband and wife. They are one flesh. It wasn't Eve's sin, it was a joint sin because Adam was right there with her when she was tempted. He saw it happen. And he didn't step up. It was a joint sin and it had consequences for men and women alike. And then in verse 7 it tells us now they know they are naked. They have a reason to feel a sense of shame. It really isn't because they're naked. You see, folks, when you, when you sin and you feel no shame and you do not sense that you've done something wrong, that is where you are really in trouble. At least Adam and Eve did have a sense of shame. They may have misplaced it to the covering of their body when they really needed their sin covered. But at least they realized they were naked and now they needed to cope 
with their nakedness. The psychologists tell us that this is one of the big dreams people have. I don't know if you've ever had a dream of being naked, but I had one one time, and it was, it was just awful. Uh, you know, that's one of the things people dream about. We're, in a way, though, we're always coping with being naked. We don't want to be exposed, and here I'm not talking about literal nakedness. We don't want people to know us deeply because we might be exposing what we don't want people to see. We need to hide the real us, we think. And we find all kinds of ways to do it. On the basketball court, one of the ways they do it is trash talk. We see it in, uh, we have the World Cup soccer going on. My son is a big soccer fan, and uh, he showed me a, a, a kind of a highlight reel of some of the places, ways that these guys take a dive. It's like they're about as far away from another player as this microphone is from me, and they go like this and start, they fall down and start rolling around. Um, you know, it's like nothing happened, but they're trying to draw attention to somebody else and get him, get the yellow card on him. We have all kinds of ways of coping with our nakedness. You do it at work. Point the finger at the other person. But the bottom line, the real problem is that we don't even want God. And this comes from verse 8. The all-knowing and all-seeing one to know what we're really like. We think we can hide. Have you ever tried to hide from God? I'll bet you have, because we all do. We all think we can hide from God. Now there's a lot of emphasis today in the, the church world about God as our friend. He's our, our good buddy. You know, we like the part of the song that says, He walks with me and He talks with me. We don't like the part of the message that says He's our judge. We try to hide from Him when He comes to judge our guilt. When God's finger points at us, we look for a place to go. And then we see in verse 9, God asking the question here that He's really always asking us, he says, where are you? Now, about that verse, those words, first it tells us that God is a seeking God. And he's been a seeking God from the beginning. You know, don't have in your mind that, Jesus that God became a seeking God when he sent Christ. God has always been a seeking God. He doesn't want anyone to wander away. That's one of the lessons in Jesus' parable about the, the hundred sheep. One was missing, he went to find it. Now, from my earliest years, I wondered why God, who I was taught was omniscient. You, you were taught that too. That means he knows everything, all-knowing. Why would he ask this question? Why would someone who knows everything ask, any question, alone, where are you, speaking right to the person, it would be like uh, me asking Blair down here, where are you? Well, I know he's right there. I'm not all omniscient, but I do know that much. He's sitting right there. Why would God ask a question that he knows the answer to? He asked the question that he knows the answer to, not because he needs to know, because it's essential for us to admit where we are. 
It's essential for Adam to admit that he had sinned, and it's essential for him to admit that suddenly he's far from God. And so then what happens in verse 10? The man is afraid of God. We're all afraid of God. We're not afraid of the concept of God. We're not afraid of some safe, innocuous God. Many people have a picture of God today as being a grandfather. Some of you, I'm sure, are grandfathers. I'm not sure where this idea of God as a grandfather comes from, but it's, it's not in the Bible. Maybe it just comes from the fact that God is old. He's been around forever, literally forever. He's the father of our fathers. But the truth is that God is not a grandfather. God has no grandchildren. And he's not the permissive kind of grandfather that overlooks the sins that we commit. He's the father who has the, the tough responsibility of disciplining his children and forming their moral character so that they will be more and more like him. See, grandfathers do not exist to form moral character in their grandchildren. Now, obviously in our world today, with as many broken homes as there are, sometimes grandfathers have to step into that role. But really, in the ideal situation, that's what fathers are for. When I did something wrong as a kid, my mom wouldn't say, wait till your grandfather comes to visit. <laughs> what would she say? Wait till your father gets home. That was supposed to put fear into us. So you kids, when you've done something wrong and you try to hide it from the ones who love you the most, who will sacrifice the most for you, who will even die for you, parents will die for their kids. Recognize they love you. Now, in 11 and 12, here's the chance for Adam to confess. Right up front, Adam could have said, Yes, I ate. I am guilty. That wouldn't have absolved him from responsibility, but he could have at least said that instead of doing what he did do. He immediately shifted the blame to Eve. She gave me the fruit. But he makes it even worse. He says, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. You know, our tradition, our, our inclination, men, to dig a hole and just keep digging no matter how deep we get in and we don't stop digging, stop digging. Adam, Adam, you know, we came by that honestly. Adam did it right from the beginning. Truth is, we shouldn't even start digging. And verse 13, if this were a court, and incidentally, it is a court because the judge of the universe is holding court here, the man would have quickly been convicted. So God turns to the woman. What have you done? And her answer, she doesn't overtly blame God with her answer. She doesn't want to admit her own personal guilt. So she does that all too human thing that you and I will always do. She shifts blame. She's a little more sophisticated about it than Adam is. Because she knows right away, Adam, you idiot. Blaming God isn't going to get you anywhere. And blaming Adam isn't going to work because she gave the fruit to him. He was right about his testimony in that fact. 
So she blames, blames the only other actor in the play, the serpent deceived me. And this sets the framework for her confession, and I ate. That's the first person who ever said, the devil made me do it. And then God says something very significant in verses 14 and 15. He condemns the serpent. And it's significant because we get to see the automatic reaction of Adam and Eve. What is it? Good. We're off the hook. He bought it. He's charging the serpent, declaring him guilty. And this exposes man's stubborn will, his incorrigible nature. And for a moment, it looks like God has accepted Eve's defense. But then he speaks to the snake. The great prophecy. I'm sure Pastor Matt has talked about it before. In verse 15, the seed of the sinner, the seed of the sinner is Christ, the sinner is Eve, will be the Savior of all man. The Redeemer will crush the head of the serpent, but not without suffering his own mortal wound. And so we see from the terrible beginning that we have here, this epic struggle is played out in the hearts of all mankind until man finds victory only in Jesus. St. Paul affirmed it in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're all the seed of Eve, but it's only in Christ that Satan is crushed. Now, some application. What we did, that which makes us all sinners, we did because we are in Adam. That's a very important phrase to us, in Adam. We've all made the same wrong choices. Like Adam, we've all been disobedient. We are sinners. It's as though we were joined at the hip with Adam. I just read yesterday about uh, there are two conjoined twins who reach their 60s, and if they live a few more months, they'll be the oldest living conjoined twins in history. Uh, now, the one isn't conjoined to uh, the original sinner. Uh, they're both descended from Adam, but they're joined actually at the hip or very near the hip. We're joined with Adam in that way. We're sinners. With Adam as our first father, we're doomed. When we're in Adam, we're doomed and we have no hope. Death came through Adam, the Bible says. It is unavoidable. But then 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam, there are those two important words, all die. Then it goes on to say, So in Christ... All will be made alive in Christ. An even more important phrase. We need to remember that because that alone is where our hope is found. Your hope is not found in Adam. Don't ever say, well, I'm only human when you've committed these sins or made any mistakes. Your hope isn't found in your humanity. It isn't found in being in Adam. Your hope is found in Jesus Christ. There is our hope. Martin Luther penned a song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and most of our hymnals, as, as high as 
Martin Luther stood in Christian history, most of our hymnals have only one hymn by him. And it goes like this. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Our ancient foe. The same one that came to Eve in the snake. His craft and power are great. It does say that the snake was crafty. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. You and I, when we're in Adam, are not equal to doing battle with Satan. No man is, match, is a match for Satan except Christ. Listen to the next line. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? That says that going to battle against our adversary while we're in Adam in our own strength is hopeless. It's a lost cause. And if our own strength isn't enough, then where do we get the strength? Whose strength does enable us to battle Satan? Then he says this, We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Way back there in verse 15 of Genesis, he shall bruise your head. It's talking about Christ Jesus. When we're in the first Adam, we hide. We make excuses. We run away. But when we're in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we can make the right choices by his power. And even when we don't, we don't need to run and hide. We don't need to make excuses. We don't need to cover our nakedness, not with fig leaves, not with animal skins, not even with polyester. We don't have to use trash talk or a puffed up ego. We don't have to shift blame to somebody else. It's the blood of Christ that covers our sins. And then we're dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It's another song, but it's just as important. Dressed in his righteousness. Those are the clothes that Adam needed and that we all need. In the second Adam, in Christ, we can approach God without that nakedness, without anything that declares our guilt, and with everything that declares us righteous. As God made garments of the dead skins for Adam and Eve, remember, there was no death before sin entered. There was no need for animal skins. Now, God clothes us not with animal skins, but with the garments of righteousness that the second Adam provides. So, get some clothes on, Adam. The garments of righteousness provided by Christ. You don't need to be afraid of God. You don't need to do any blame shifting. But you didn't sin innocently. You're guilty and you know you're naked standing before him. But the good news is we don't need to hide from God. We can't hide from God. We can't approach God in the garments of righteousness provided by Christ Jesus, earned for us by his death and resurrection. And that is so we can have hope in Christ. Now, the cartoon that I promised at the end. You remember all those earlier cartoons? How the social progressives see me or you? How our neighbors see us? How the media sees us? 
how atheists see us, how I see myself. None of those are important. What's important is how God sees me, and He sees me in this way. He's with me. Notice in that first panel, only Jesus has the halo. He touches me, and now He can say to God and to everybody, He's with me. That's where our righteousness lies, in Him and Him alone. As I said, a lot of sermons have three points. This one has ju had just one. We can stand before Christ, before God, without guilt, only if we are in Christ. Repeat that. We can stand before God without guilt only when we are in Christ. Yes, Adam's our first representative, but in him we're all lost. Thank God we don't need to stand before him in Adam. We can stand before God without guilt only if we are in Christ. The author of our faith, it says it right there in Genesis 3.10, and the finisher of our faith, the one who will ultimately come to liberate all of us.